Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And we are back today about to jump back into the conversation that we started last week with our special guest, Alan Crostick. Alan is an apologist, um, a speaker, a Bible study leader, and a reoccurring favorite guest on this program. And I know you're going to appreciate this conversation we are having with my October co-host, Latasha. Tasha had some great questions about the holidays and why we celebrate them and the history of them. And if you listened last week, you probably heard Alan share quite a a lot of detail about the history of some of um, our favorite holidays. But today we're going to change course a little bit. We're going to talk more about the Bible and have a great discussion about that. And something that we're going to dive right into uh, that you won't hear um, was a part in the conversation where I told Alan that I thought he needed to write a book. Um, and I thought that it would be super original. So we're going to dive right in here. Um, thank you for listening, friend. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. I, I don't think I have an original thought in my mind. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've learned things from people over the years. I um, I, I don't know. I think there's there's value in doing theology in community. Mm-hmm. Um, we're supposed to do it in community. And, um, you know, a lot of people think, you know, you've heard this over the years, you know, like what's pious is I don't need, I don't need these commentaries. I don't need to seek outside guidance. It's just me and my Bible. Well, that sounds awfully pious, but it's the quickest way to heresy mm-hmm. because you're assuming that you're coming to scripture as a blank slate. No one comes to scripture as a blank slate. We all come with our own fallible and sinful presuppositions that we bring to the table. And to assume that you can come to the Bible as a blank slate is to assume you don't have any, and you can ignore the godly instruction of teachers who have lived and gone on before you. That's the height of naivete. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the canon and like the books that didn't make it in? Um, for the books that didn't make it in. So I'm as a Protestant, right. I, um, I think those books are useful. I don't think they rise to the level of Canon. Now, of course, my, my, my Orthodox and my Catholic brothers will disagree with me there, but, um, there isn't anything 
I don't feel like there's anything that you're missing out on in terms of the truth when it comes to that. And here, here's the thing, don't confuse disagreement over the edges of the canon with the core of the canon. Um, there has been a core of the canon dating back from the very beginning. From the very beginning, um, now, now when I say very beginning right now, I'm talking about the New Testament. Um, the things the early church, the books of the early church always seem to affirm as far back as we can tell were the four gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, 1 Peter and 1 John. Um, there was some debate about some of the other books on the edges. Um, but the general tendency over time was what should we leave out versus what should we put in, the general tendency. Um, when it comes to, um, when it comes to the, uh, the, the Old Testament canon, I'm trying to remember this, I'm a little bit hazy on this part. Um, but they, back in the day, they had what was called the, the Masoretic text, which was created in 100 AD. And the main uh, canon of the New Testament church was the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, that's the one they primarily learned from because many of the new Christians were Greeks coming in who couldn't read Aramaic. They couldn't read the Targums, which was Aramaic rendering of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, they couldn't read Hebrew. So this became very useful for them. Um, and among the Septuagint, you find these other books. The Jews never accepted those other books. Um, the books of the, uh, what we call now call the Apocrypha or that Catholics call the, the Deuterocanonical books. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't accept them as part of their canon. Um, now, even Jerome, when he translated um, the Septuagint into the Vulgate, even he himself didn't recognize those books as being canon. He, he recognized them as ecclesiastical books, books that were useful in terms of, you know, practice and maybe some various other things. But as far as not, not books to derive doctrine from, he still looked at those as the Old Testament canon. And not only that, but if you look in Luke chapter 20, I think it was 24 verse 44, you find Jesus talking about, you know, he, he refers to the scriptures as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, where he recognizes this threefold structure of scripture, um, where we have, you know, the Torah, you know, the, what we call the Pentateuch, uh, the law, first five books, the prophets, and then also the Psalms. Most people think that he's talking about the writings. The, the, um, those who are Jewish call the Old Testament the Tanakh. And it's called the Tanakh because you have the Torah, starts with a T. You have um, the, uh, the, the, the prophets, the Naveen, and you have the, uh, the writings, the, the, the uh, Tedavim. And so T and K, and they just put two vowels in between and you get Tanakh. Um, that's where that word comes from. But Jesus also says elsewhere, and I can't remember the reference for this one, that he talks about the righteous blood being spilled from Abel, um, to Zechariah. And um, now Zechariah is not found in the oldest book of the Bible we have in our order, and the last book of the Bible, Micah. But in the way they had the, had the order of books situated then, the last book was Chronicles. So even it's like Jesus is even affirming that he himself saw the canon as Abel, the first person who was killed by someone wicked, they saw Zechariah, Zechariah of Joyida, I can never say his name, uh, Joyida. Um, so that would also seem to imply that's what Jesus saw as the Old Testament canon. Um, now, there's more that can be said about that. One can get into more detail about that. When, when the Protestants came along, 
when Luther even first translated the Bible um, from the Vulgate into German, he didn't do away with the Apocrypha. Um, he didn't do away with it either. Um, the Apocrypha was found all, it was still included um, all the way up until like, I wanna say like the 1830s, 1830, even in the King James Bible. It's not now in the Protestant Bible. Um, but um, I would say, I mean, if, if you wanna read them, go right ahead. Um, I don't think there's can anything. I believe them? Can you believe them? Um, yeah. For the most part, I would, I would say yes. Now there's some parts in there that as a Protestant, I would have trouble with. Um, you know, I, the idea of praying to the dead and, and so forth. Um, you know, and people in, in the Orthodox Church and Catholics would say, well, what's wrong with praying to the dead? I mean, you pray when you're sick. Don't you ask right, other people pray to pray for you? I'm sorry? Yeah, the Catholics pray to the saints that are in heaven and ask the saints to pray for them. Yeah. And see, and I don't, I don't find any scriptural basis for that. And I, I, I heard the episode you had with Coco, and I, I'm, I, I sympathize kind of with what he said. I feel like I'm speaking to the dead on my behalf to accomplish something for me. Um, now, some will disagree with that, and that's fine. Um, there were certain church fathers who agreed over the status of certain books, whether they should be canon or not. I mean, I think of Tertullian. Tertullian believed that First Enoch should be part of the canon. Um, now, later on in his life, he, he recanted of that. And he just said, well, he said, I thought it belonged here. He says, but I, I got to trust that the Holy Spirit is supervising this whole thing through the church. And I'm not seeing it made it. So, okay. Apparently that's not what he wanted. Now, First Enoch is still included in the Ethiopian canon. Mm -hmm. um, so, but um, I wouldn't get too hung up on that. Um, but I mean, if you want, again, if you want to read it, I think you can learn a lot about first century Jewish practice and context and some of the other things. I mean, there were certain, I mean, if you read Jude and second Peter, they're quoting from first Enoch. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't keep them from finding it useful. Like for today, I might quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, doesn't mean I think he should be in the canon but I might think he has some good points to make. So I'm gonna quote from him. Um, does that make sense? Yes. Alan, to follow up on what you just shared, um, and, and I, I guess I want the, the more condensed version of this. <laughs> um, I'll try. But yeah. Why do you trust the Bible? Oh, important thing to understand is I think put it like this. We don't believe in Jesus because we believe in, believe in the Bible. We believe in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. Um, and I don't know if you've ever heard any of my prior uh, times I've been on here, but I've shared before um, how one could uh, prove using the standards of history that the resurrection was a real event that happened in the past. And I mean, I can get into that again, or you can kind of just, for those who are listening, you could just refer back to that earlier episode. But here's the deal. Um, if Jesus rose from the dead, I start to pay attention to what he taught. I start to pay attention to what he said about himself, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I, will, I will go back to this part. Um, some people might be confused when they hear, what do you mean we believe in 
in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. Jesus is in the Bible. That sounds like circular reasoning. No. You have to understand that when scholars, and I'm talking about people that come to the Bible and they don't have any religious convictions. When, when scholars approach the Bible, they're not approaching it like some holy inspired book. Um, they're approaching the Bible as a set of documents like they would any other set of historical documents. And they're examining those documents to see whether any of them are historically reliable or any portions of them bear the earmarks of historicity, all right? See, it's important to remember, and I think Kokel said this in his, his um, episode before mine, the Bible's more of a library than it is a book. You have to remember at one point in time, there was no such thing as the New Testament. There were just all these separate documents come out of the first century. You had a gospel from a guy named Luke over here, um, you know, um, or who we ascribe to Luke, um, epistle from Paul, um, what, what have you. And the church collected all of them and put them under one cover, calling it the New Testament. And they only chose those documents that were the earliest or closest to Jesus and the original disciples and avoided those who were later and there were obvious forgeries, like the apocryphal gospel. Don't show up until the second half of the second century, right? So we know that those are forgeries. We know that they're apocryphal. So it's true that Jesus is found in a range of sources outside of the New Testament, probably about 18. And it's true that you can construct a general outline of his life without even opening a page of the Bible, a general outline just by looking at those sources. But the earliest and most reliable sources are found in the New Testament themselves, right? And for the reasons I just stated, that's why it's not circular reasoning. When people insist that we only use documents outside of the New Testament, they don't know what they're asking. They're asking that we reject the earliest and most reliable documents in favor of documents that were later secondary, derivative, and less reliable, which is crazy as historical methodology. So I got news for you. If you're talking to a scholar, even a skeptical one, if you don't use the New Testament, he's going to. Um, so a lot of lay people don't understand that procedure. And so what I like to do, especially if I'm looking at the New Testament, many times I just stick to the undisputed letters of Paul. Now, I believe Paul wrote all of the letters attributed to him, um, but um, those that are undisputed in scholarship are Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, 1st Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon, um, for a number of different reasons. And so I will use that information. And when, when you look at that information, you can construct several facts that we know about Jesus. We know that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. You know that, um, which is a well and multiply attested event. Um, we know that his original disciples from the kerygma found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, a kerygma is a formal proclamation of the early church. It's a creed that actually predates the writing of Paul's gospel that most scholars believe traces back to the original Jerusalem apostles. Um, and in that creed, we're told that Jesus appeared individually to Peter, James, and John. And there were three group appearances, or two, if not three, group appearances um, to the 12th, to 500 at one time, where he says some have died, but some are still living. The implication is they're still there if you want to talk to them. Um, and then all of the apostles. Um, and so everyone believes that. And also Paul mentions himself, a hostile skeptic, a skeptic. A lot of people don't realize that those facts are not controversial. Virtually everyone believes them. And by everyone, I don't mean Christians. I mean, Christians do too, but I'm talking atheists, agnostic, Jewish scholars, all of them. 
believe that because it's considered historical bedrock. Each of those facts are evidence from a multitude of different angles. Um, they're multiply attested and they're so well attested that the vast majority of scholars have accepted them as historical, all right? And that's not an argument from popularity. That's not an argument from authority. I'm merely saying that why they're uh, deemed historically accurate because they're multiply attested. And by the way, the experts agree on the basis of that as well. Those are the only facts that I typically use to make my case. Um, and if you know from the previous, one of the previous episodes, I think the resurrection hypothesis blows the other hypotheses out of the water. Um, so there's something else though. When it comes to, let, let's say we wanna look at the gospels or any, any, of, any of the books in the New Testament. Historians use a number of criteria to determine whether a particular event or saying is likely to be historical in any given document. Even if they think a document might be halfway false or whatever, there are certain criteria they use to determine what nuggets of truth might be in them. And these are called the criteria of authenticity. And here's some examples. Like, so one is called the criterion of embarrassment. In other words, if there's something in the story, like say one of the gospels that's embarrassing or counterproductive to your cause, it's most likely to be historical. Because why would you make something else that sheds your leader or your cause in a bad light? Um, one example of this, one of the best reasons why many people believe that it really is historical that women were the first to discover the empty tomb is because of the low status women had back at that time. Back at that time, um, a woman's, uh, a woman's um, testimony wasn't even admissible in court. They had such a low opinion of them. And so the idea is if you're trying to make up a story about why Jesus rose from the dead, why on the earth would you want to include a woman being the first one who found it? And not just any woman, a woman who happened to have seven demons exercised out of her by Jesus. I mean, how does that sound? Mary found them. I mean, yeah, she had demons, but she's okay now. <laughs> you know, why would you make that up? The most plausible rec uh, explanation as to why that's in there is because that's the way it went down. So you have the criterion of embarrassment. You have the criterion of dissimilarity. In other words, for example, if you find something on Jesus's lips that wasn't mentioned by Jews before him or in the early church after him, um, the most likely explanation is this is something he actually said. Um, you can't say that it's the church trying to Monday morning quarterback something into Jesus's mouth. You had um, Semitisms. You know, if you found like Aramaic substrata, that's a like likelihood that this is something that was historical. Multiple attestation, if it's found in more than one source, it's likely to be historical. When scholars look at the gospels, they look at, they look at the sources behind them very differently. Um, it's believed that Mark was the first gospel written, right? So one source is Mark. Now, I want to say something like 80% of Mark is also found in Mark and Luke. I mean, pardon me, Matthew and Luke, that they use him as a source. Now, why would that be? Why would they use him as a source? Because John Mark was the person writing for the apostle Peter, who was one of the inner three. So it makes sense that they would probably want to pay attention to what Mark had to write since he's writing the memoirs of Peter. Um, so, but there's also information in Mark and Luke that matches, but is not found uh, pardon me, in Matthew and Luke that matches, but is not found in Mark. That's a source document they, uh, scholars refer to as Q, which comes from the German word quell, which means source. And it could have been an oral source. It could have been a written source. No one knows. Some people think it might've been some of the notes one of the apostles wrote 
don't know, but it's considered a saying's gospel. And then there's information that's just unique to Matthew alone and to Luke alone. They call those two sources M and L respectively. And then of course you have John's gospel. So you have a total of a, a possibility of maybe like five sources, M, Q, uh, pardon me, Mark, Q, M, L, and John. And so what you do is when you look at some of the things Jesus said about himself, um, things like being the son of man, that's something that re, uh, um, meets the criterion of dissimilarity. You don't find anyone uh, ascribing that title to the Messiah by Jews before Jesus. You don't really even find it after Jesus. You don't find it on a single epistle. The only place you find it uh, outside of Revelation is in Acts uh, by Stephen when he's standing up and he sees Jesus standing beside the throne of God, which would kind of go along with what we read in Mark 14, verses 61 through 64, uh, where Jesus is kind of telling the Pharisees who he is. My point is you find different places in the Gospels. With this criteria of authenticity, people can know, okay, well, Jesus claimed that he was God. The other thing he claims which is multiply attested, this is found in Mark, Q, M, um, and John, is Jesus having a high view of scripture. And, you know, this is somebody who says, you know, um, you know when, whenever he's tested, he quotes from scripture, he quotes from the Old Testament. Um, you know, honor the Lord your God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, the second command is like it. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. He tells the rich young ruler, you know the, you know the commandments, what are they? follow them, you'll have eternal life. Um, on and on you go. Jesus had a high view of scripture. Once you establish that Jesus rose from the dead, I'm going to pay attention to what he said. And the things that we can historically verify, and realize I'm coming to this initially like I'm a, someone who's not a Christian. But notice that once I do, once I apply the criteria of authenticity to it, and I establish the things that he, it's very probable that he really said, I know he claimed to be the son of God. I know he had a high view of scripture. Not only that, I know he had a reputation for being a miracle worker because that's found in all the sources as well. And now suddenly I'm paying attention. Now the question might be, if you're anything like most people, you're probably thinking, okay, well, if man has free will, how can God be the author of scripture and man be the author of scripture? I mean, is he pulling their puppet strings? What's going on? Has that ever been something that's popped up as a question? In your I, mind? I, I usually have always asked if people suffer because of man's free will, then what's to stop man's free will from putting the wrong books in the Bible or taking okay. the right books out? Good question. So here's where I think the idea of divine middle knowledge has great explanatory power. And I'll explain what that means. Um, all throughout time, Christians have believed that although God knows everything at once, um, you can describe different parts of his knowledge, right? On one hand is God's knowledge of everything that's possible, everything that could happen. Theologians have sometimes called this his natural knowledge because he knows this knowledge by virtue of knowing his known nature. He knows everything that could happen. Flash forward, you have another type of knowledge which is his knowledge of everything that will happen. Scholars, uh, theologians call this his free knowledge, all right? But in between his natural knowledge and his free knowledge, and that's why it's called what it is, is, is his middle knowledge. That's God's knowledge, not merely of everything that could happen, 
but of everything that actually would happen under various circumstances, all right? To give you an example of what I mean, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 23, there is a place, a place where David is running from Saul, and he's in Calah, the city of Calah. And he asks God, he's like, you know, he, he does this through a, um, a, a divining device called, called the ephod. Um, but he asks God, he says, if I stay here, will Saul and his men come here? And if they come here, will the people hand me over to him? And God basically answers him yes to both of those questions. Yeah, if you stay where you are, Saul's going to come. And if he does come, the people are going to hand him over to you. So what does David do? He gets out of Dodge, and Saul never ends up coming there, and the people never hand him over. So now we can ask the question, what kind of knowledge was this God was conveying to David? Um, it wasn't merely his natural knowledge, his knowledge of what could possibly happen. David knew Saul could possibly come there. That's why he's asking. He knew that people could possibly hand him over. That's why he's praying. On the other hand, it's, not all, it's also not God's free knowledge. In other words, it's not his foreknowledge because David left, so the people never did give him over to Saul. And Saul never did come there. Rather, what this is, it's his middle knowledge. It's his knowledge of what would have happened had David stayed where he was. And see, and here's the awesome thing. Armed with this type of knowledge, God can providentially plan a world down to the most minute detail. And he can do it without annihilating human freedom because everything every person would freely do in any possible circumstance he might place them in is already factored into the equation by him. So as a result, God knows that if he were to create a Paul and put him in a certain set of freedom permitting circumstances, he knows if Paul would write what he wanted him to write. And so what God does is he actualizes the circumstances, places Paul in them and freely backs off and lets him do freely what he knows with the ultimate certainty he's going to do. And as a result of that, what you have is you have a way in which you can make sense of plenary, verbal, confluent inspiration. By plenary, we're speaking of the breadth of scripture, you know, that all the books are inspired. You know, like it says, I think in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, preaching, rebuking, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Verbal means it's all the way down to the word. I mean, you'll find like some people, you'll find like, like Paul arguing, I think it's in Romans. He's like, notice, God doesn't just tell Abraham, this is for your seeds. It says for your seed, singular. You know, that even the words are important. And confluent means it's a, it's a, it's a work by God and man together. But once you understand this concept of middle knowledge, you can understand how all that can work together. And I remember there's one philosopher, I remember William Lane Craig said he found it was to be one of the most fruitful theological concepts he's ever encountered. And I agree. It makes sense of so much. It makes sense of the problem of evil. It makes sense of, let me ask, if, if you were a guy, the odds of you seeing this movie would be a lot more probable. Do you ever, have you ever watched any of the, the Marvel movies by chance? Has that been yeah. something on your radar? Did you uh, ever see, did you see the comic book character? The comic book movies. Did you see Avengers Infinity War by chance? 
Okay, never mind. Possibly. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> that one's lost. It's a shame because that was such a good illustration. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? No. Yeah. What? Oh, it's the the Christmas movie. classic? So for those listening, I'll, I'll go over It's a Wonderful Life. Um, in A Wonderful Life, you have um, George Bailey, right? And he's despairing. Things aren't going well in his life. He's about to throw himself off of a bridge, about to kill himself. And suddenly this person appears in the water and unbeknownst to him, it's an angel named Clarence. And Clarence saves George Bailey from killing himself. And George says, you know what? I wish I was never born. And Clarence goes, what a great idea. Let's go with that. And so he allows George Bailey to see how life would have been had he never been born. And as a result, George Bailey sees all the things that would happen. His brother would have died in a childhood accident. Um, things went horrible with his wife. All these people whose lives he touched um, fell apart. That would be an example of God knowing what would happen in different circumstances. Sometimes people call these counterfactuals because they're counter to the fact of the matter. God knows what would have happened. So for example, like, and you find this all throughout scripture, you find, you know, like Paul saying, if the powers had known, if the authorities had known that um, what would have happened from crucifying the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have done it. And he's mm. talking about the powers in the spiritual realm, how they had no clue what Jesus was accomplishing there. Had they known, they wouldn't have moved in to make the crucifixion happen. You know, which is one of the reasons why prophecy of end times is so cryptic. You know, just like it was cryptic before Jesus, it's purposely cryptic. It's done that way on purpose. So even the enemy can't put all the pieces together. And I imagine that'll be that same way when Jesus comes back. We won't really see clearly to what's 2020. Hindsight being 2020. Oh, that's what that meant. I didn't realize that's how it was put together. Just like they did in Jesus's time. Does that answer your question in terms of how scripture can be divinely inspired without God pulling the strings, so to speak? It answers, yeah, it makes me feel more like I can actually believe what I'm reading and and have that cornerstone of my faith you know yeah mm -hmm. it's such an important cornerstone to have you know to trust really the words that you're reading yeah um well Alan uh, once again um You've just provided a wealth of information. I think we might just split this into two separate episodes, but I did have one additional question and, and then we'll ask the final one that you're familiar with. But sure. I was just thinking as I was preparing for this conversation with you, you um, God has given you a gift uh, with retaining information, with sharing uh, what he's done in your life and, and sharing the things that you've learned with others. But if there was just one message that you could share with the world, like the one thing that maybe you want to be known for, what would it be? Well, I would say um, that this is what life is all about. What Jesus has done for us. Um, I'll mention this too. You know, earlier we were talking about how even in the Bible, certain pagan things were reclaimed for the cause of Christ. Going back to the very beginning of the Bible, one of the things we were told is that we were made in the image of God. And we hear that today, and there's all sorts of different things we come up with, you know, like, well, this means that we have a conscience, you know, we have morals, stuff like that. 
Don't get me wrong, those all represent facets of truth. But the fact of the matter is, if you wanna know what Moses meant by that, if you wanna know what the Israelites meant by that, you have to get in a time machine. Because when you get in a time machine, you go back to that time, you find that they weren't the first ones to use that term. This term, image of God, likeness of the gods, son of God, that was a term used by the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and so forth. Um, and they used it to refer to only one type of person back there in antiquity. And it was the king or the Pharaoh, you know, your Brenner, right? That was the person it referred to because kings back in the ancient world were thought to have a very special purpose. It was their role to learn the will of the gods in heaven and to make it happen on earth. That's why they were able to accomplish these things like the pyramids, the roads and all these types of things. Back then the title, image of God was applied to kings. So you have to understand how radical this is. God is telling them, no, it's not just kings that are made in my image. It's all of you. All of you are to learn the will of God in heaven and implement it on this planet. And you flash forward back to the New Testament. That's one of the reasons that Jesus says what he does in the Lord's prayer. His top priorities are at the top of the prayer. So often we live in the bottom. You know, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff, right? But there's a common pronoun in each one of those petitions, the word us. We often find everything about us to be the biggest and most extreme thing we can possibly, you know, think of. But that wasn't where Jesus's priorities were. They were in the top of the Lord's prayer. And that's where he says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be revered. And he says, may your kingdom come. What does that mean? Well, he explains it in the next verse. May your kingdom come, which means may your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Going right back to that image of God thing. And I remember one of my professors saying, you know, this whole image of God thing, this is why you breathe. This is what the Bible's all about. And he says, now some of you say, well, I thought the Bible's all about Jesus. Well, it is all about Jesus, but it's all about Jesus as he does this, this image of God thing. And through Jesus Christ, Jesus finally did this image of God thing the way it was supposed to be done. He lived in our place and he did it perfectly. He lived the life we were supposed to live. See, a lot of times people, when you ask them, why did Jesus come to this world? And we say, well, he had to die for us. And that's true. That's an integral part of the Christmas story, or pardon me, part of the gospel. But that's not all he did. But that's all he had to do to secure our redemption, our salvation. He could have just come down on a parachute, went to the cross and went to heaven. But instead, he comes as a man and lives his whole life, which is why Paul refers to him as the second Adam. He lives as our new representative. And on our behalf, he lives the life that we were supposed to have lived, but never did. And he died the death in our place that was ours to die. And when we place our trust in him. His perfect life is imputed to us. And the sin we deserved hasn't been imputed to him. And what's important to understand when we talk about having faith in him, the word faith, pistis, doesn't mean merely intellectual assent. It doesn't mean just believing the right stuff, right? Um, it means active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. Having faith in Christ means living a life of believing loyalty. It means living a life of allegiance, right? And once you understand faith, saving faith that way, the whole dichotomy between faith and works kind of answers itself. When you look at faith as believing loyalty, I mean, even C.S. Lewis once said, it makes no sense to say you trust someone but never follow their advice. 
So that's what I want. And I want that for everybody else I talk to. I want them to see that. And for us to be committed to living a life of believing loyalty to him, we will slip up. We absolutely will. But that's one of the reasons why James once said, you know, if faith with not accompanied by action is dead. Because at the end of the day, your works reveal what is hidden in your heart. I'm not saying you're saved by works. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to merit. Um, so because of what Jesus did, I, and I always go back to Nabil. I, I, Nabil Qureshi was one of the people in this world that I think just made, made a distinct impression on me. And what made an impression is when he wasn't healed from cancer. And I remember him being up on stage and he says, here's the deal. No matter what I'm going through, it isn't anything compared to being crucified. And not only being crucified, but crucified for the people who love you. And he says, I don't care what I go through. I will never deny his name. I will not deny him. Amen. You know, and, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people miss this from the book of Job. I know I've talked about this before. What that means is your finest hour in this life is not when everything's going great for you. It's not when you Amen. get that job you want. It's not when you're going on that vacation you want. Rather, it's when all hell is raining down on you and you feel like your life is falling apart and you turn to God and say, I will still honor you. That is your finest hour. That is when both men and angels stop and watch and wait to see what's going to happen next. We find that in Ephesians 3.10, that even the angels in heaven learn about God's wisdom by watching the church, watching your life. Um, what we do here sends ripples into eternity. We think we're living in a benign, no, everything we do matters. Um, that's long-winded, but um, how's that? I'm going to ask you the final question. You already know it. The Finding yeah. Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love of those four gifts. And there's plenty more that we can find in relationship with Jesus, which stands out to you the most in your life right now and why. I think I said this the last two times. I think my answer will still remain the same. I think right now, I'd still have to say, if, I mean, that they all, again, they all go together, but I'd have to say authenticity. Um, because if it's not true, what's the point, right? I remember one time C.S. Lewis saying, you know, I used to always kind of get aggravated at people who wanted me to be Christian, trying to convince me Christianity was good. I don't care for rip. If, I don't give a rip if it's good. I only care if it's true. And I like what he said. He goes, if it's false, it's of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is just moderately important. Um, and I hear that and I say, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Alan Krostic and Tasha. Thank you both for being here. Tasha, did you get some of your questions answered here? I mean, you were looking forward yes. to this. Yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, can I add something? Sure. Um, he brought up the, the book of Job and, you know, what he said about, uh, whenever everything is going bad, that's, that's kind of what I did with when my son was dying. And, uh, I thought about the book of Job and I thought that I needed to let the enemy know that no matter what he did, I wasn't going to turn away from God and stop worshiping God. Even if he took my son's life. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I thought that same thing when I heard that episode, Tasha, that's the first thing that came to my mind too. I was like, wow. 
she was really going for the trial of, trials of Job. And it certainly sounds like you passed on that score. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm really glad you're here. And uh, yeah, until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.